Hello and welcome to the latest Moneymakers Weekly Investment Trust podcast. I'm Jonathan Davis, the editor of the Investment Trust Handbook, and with me as every week is Simon Elliott, the head of Investment Trust Research at Winterflood Securities. It's been another short week for the markets this week, Simon, because at least in the UK, because of the uh, holiday. What's been going on out there? Yeah, it's been a bit of a roller coaster of a week, to be honest. I mean, the numbers are that uh, in terms of the UK market, in the form of the FTSE All Share, it's ended up in positive territory, probably about 2% or so. Uh, investment companies will be a little bit behind that. Certainly the first three working days of the week, they were down about 1.3%, uh, but they will have rallied with the market on that final day. And that reflects actually that we had some bad news or bad economic data out at the end of the week on Friday uh, from the US in terms of their jobs growth. The number that they published was uh, significantly behind expectation and uh, that eased fears of higher inflation uh, and cutbacks to the stimulus. And funnily enough, the market did better on that, in particular technology stocks. And they had been lagging previously uh, during the week. Janet Yellen had made some comments earlier in the week which rather kind of pulled cold water on some of the higher growth names. Uh, she made some comments that if the US economy were to be seen to be overheating, then rates would have to rise. And, and this resulted in a bit of a sell-off. It just shows how sensitive markets are to these comments. And for the first two or three days of the week, uh, it was a good period for value investors, but a sharp turnaround at the end. But the point is that the market ended in positive territory. Yes, it's a good example of the old adage that uh, bad news can sometimes be good news in terms of markets. Depends where you're coming from, of course, what your angle is and what your interest is in the market. The US jobless numbers are one of the most frequently watched, perhaps one of them, the most watched monthly economic indicator that comes out. But you have to say it's often quite revised subsequently. So the initial market reaction is not always a guide to what happens uh, over the ensuing period. It could just be a, a rogue reading for whatever reason. We've also had some, obviously, local elections and uh, regional elections in the UK. And we, as a, a time of recording, we don't know the outcome, but it does appear that um, all eyes are on Scotland, obviously, to see how the SNP does. And the Tories have won the Hartlepool constituency and a by-election for the first time in, well, ever, I think, since the constituency was created. So it's a, it's a fascinating political landscape out there. Um, but we're focusing on investment trusts, our favourite topic. And we're going to kick off with fundraising. There's been more fundraising. The markets have been pretty strong since the start of the year, well, since the autumn, in fact. And we've seen a lot of fundraising. And let's start off with Bailey Gifford China Growth Trust. Yes, well, an interesting development, this one. I mean, we've talked quite a bit about Bailey Gifford China Growth Trust over the last year or so. And that's a reflection of the fact that this investment trust, it was previously Witten Pacific. It moved to Bailey Gifford back in September last year, at which time it saw a significant re-rating. And actually, it's been issuing quite a lot of uh, new shares in response to that strong rating. Uh, but the news this week is that the fund, the board, is proposing a placing of up to uh, 5.8 million new ordinary shares. Uh, and that's equivalent to about 10% of the share capital. The issue price will be equivalent to the NAV plus a 3% premium as at the 27th of May. So uh, in a few weeks' time, and they'll announce uh, the results of the placing on the 1st of June. But what this means, and the important thing behind this, is that the premium on this particular investment trust had been quite extended for a period of time. So 
uh, probably 9-10%. In fact, at one stage back in November last year, I think it briefly hit about 30-33% premium, which is quite unusual for a, an investment trust with a portfolio of effectively publicly listed shares. So what they have attempted to do really as a way of alleviating the premium I think we can take is put this placing out there, raise 10% in one go. It allows those investors who who need liquidity, need uh, a large amount of shares to satisfy their demand to uh, kind of put their bids on the table. Um, And it should really, and in fact it has, it bring the premium down to more manageable levels. And I think this is something that we talked about before with the obviously very, very important to manage the discount of an investment trust, but equally, and I would certainly argue this, you've got to manage your premium as well. Uh, and this is uh, the way that Bailey Giver China Grove are attempting to do it. Right. And it's certainly been an interesting uh, roller coaster ride in this trust uh, since Bailey Giffer got involved. I was just looking at the share price chart and back in October, it was trading at around 450p, something like that. And then it shot up to over £6 at the, at the peak when you were talking about the big premium and so on. And now the current share price is what? Is around 470p, something like that? 475, I've got on my screen, 475. 475p. So it's it's been up, it's sort of Duke of York, been up a long way, come down a long time. But uh, there's obviously still demand for it at this price. And uh, obviously, you, if you were interested in buying it when it was soaring ahead, you possibly should be interested in buying it now. How do you think this might go? Can you venture an opinion on that? Well, we've seen uh, so far this year, the first four months of this year, we've seen issuance at a premium equivalent to about 39 million. If they do get a, a further 10% away at the current share price of 475, that's equivalent to about 27 million. So it would suggest that there is demand. It's still trading on a premium rating, about 5% or so at the moment. Although, uh, you know, as we've just discussed at the outset of this podcast, markets have got a little bit choppier of late. But I think Bailey Gifford as a brand is still incredibly strong. It's very clear what they're trying to do. Roderick Snell and Sophie Earnshaw, the two managers on this one, have done a good job so far, though obviously it's very early days since they, they picked up this one. So uh, we will await to see. But I think it's very important that they get the premium under control. Yes. And shall we just compare that once again, just for perhaps listeners who haven't uh, done this recently, look at how they compare in terms of size and rating with the other there's two quite large trusts in that sector, in the China sector. How do they compare? Yeah, so the largest is Fidelity China Special Situations, uh, and that was launched by Anthony Bolton a, a number of years ago now, but it's got a market cap not too far off 2.2 billion, and that's trading on a relatively small discount, probably about 2% or so. JP Morgan China Growth and Income, that's a decent sized fund, about 540 million or so. Uh, and that's trading on a small premium rating. And they've certainly issued quite a few shares uh, at that premium rating so far this year. And then, as mentioned, the Bailey Gifford Fund, that's the smallest of the three. But even so, it has grown significantly, even under the brief tenure at Bailey, Bailey Gifford, uh, and is now approaching a £300 million market cap. So definitely a sector to keep watching. Been a lot of action there in the last year or so, indeed over the last 10 years. It, uh, perhaps it's worth saying that uh, when it was launched, the Fidelity China Special Situations Trust with Anthony Bolton, the well-known manager at the helm. A lot of people said it was very disappointing. The early performance wasn't very good. The timing was poor. But if you look back at the 10-year record, it's been uh, pretty remarkable, actually, has it not? It has. I don't have the, the exact 10-year numbers in front of me. But yeah, I mean, the fact that it's, as I said, it's trading at a £2 billion plus uh, investment trust. I mean, it was a decent sized launch back in the day for, for Anthony Bolton. But the growth that you've seen has is, is reflective of the of the performance, the strong performance over that 10 plus years. 
It's certainly in the order of something like uh, 330%, something like that, I see reading off the AOC website. Been pretty extraordinary growth, uh, but of course China has been a remarkable story itself. And the markets there have opened up more recently. It's easier for overseas investors to invest in a wider range of shares in China these days. Let's move on and talk about uh, some more fundraising. Let's start with JLEN Environmental Assets. Perhaps you might remind us who they are and uh, what are they hoping to do? Yep. So JLEN Environmental Assets, they are it's an investment company run by two Chris's, Chris Tan and Chris Holmes, and they're part of the Foresight Group. And as the name would suggest, perhaps they invest in renewable energy infrastructure type plays. So quite an interesting story, really. When they initially launched, they were very much focused on wind and solar and anaerobic digestion. And as the life of the company has gone on, they've kind of diversified out. And what they've announced this week is that they're looking to place just short of 55 million new ordinary shares. The idea being to raise uh, additional capital to invest in a pipeline of operational bioenergy assets and battery storage opportunities. And battery storage is is something that uh, a lot of people are talking about at the moment. But the the key thing to note with regard to this particular placing, it would be done on a book building process. Um, So it will be a case of people indicating at what price they would be happy to get involved and then there's a mechanism that effectively clears the demand. So the, the pattern that we've seen with these renewable energy infrastructure plays is that they've been pretty oversubscribed uh, and that's something something that we've talked about in weeks gone by. And so uh, one way of kind of alleviating is rather than uh, specifying a particular price, it has allowed the book to take care of it themselves depending on people's demand. So it'd be interesting to see where that comes out at. Indeed, it will. And uh, that trust also has been trading at a a fairly significant premium, I think, which is uh, not uncommon in that area. Um, How does that one compare to the others in the the sector? Yeah, no, it's a good point. I mean, many of them do trade on quite significant premiums and certainly premiums of the order of the day. I mean, the the, the weighted average premium for the uh, renewable energy infrastructure subsector is 10%. JLEN is a little bit north of that. I've got it nearer to about 20% or so at the moment. Uh, but just to pick out a few names at random, Greencoat UK Wind, which is a, a pretty large fund now that's trading on a 12% premium. The Renewable Infrastructure Group, also known as TRIG, that's on a 9% premium. So uh, Octopus Renewables, that's a newer one, a 14% premium. So certainly double-digit premiums are not uncommon. And I think that's a reflection of the fact that these uh, this is an, an area that is in demand, uh, that we've seen quite a lot of capital flow into this area. And also the yields that these funds offer are pretty attractive. Certainly the weighted average yield uh, at the moment in that subsector is 5.1%. Yes, that is attractive. So just to round out the technicalities on this one, Simon, the number of shares. So what, is, what does that represent as a percentage of the uh, of the market capitalization of the company? Is it a significant, is it going to be a significant event in that context or, or not so significant? It, well, it's 10% of the shares in issue at the moment. So yes, relatively significant. And the last time actually that this investment company raised uh, new money was back in March 2020. In fact, I think it was probably one of the last substantial fundraisings we saw before uh, the world appeared to stop back in those dark days last year. They raised £57 million on that particular occasion. And you know, it'd be interesting to see where they come out uh, this time round. But it's effectively 10%, equivalent to 10% of the share capital. I mean, to give you a rule of thumb, their market cap is just below 600 million or so at the moment. So if you worked out 10% of that on the current share price, gives you some indication, I suspect, of what they're trying to raise. 
Can you uh, remind us what what was the price at which they did that placing a year ago, just before the pandemic? Yes, at that stage they raised money at one one five p, so one pound and fifteen p. And they're now trading around just around what one one nine one ten something like that. That's correct. Yeah, one oh nine. Right. So investors who who went into that placing, they've had the yield, uh, but they haven't seen much capital appreciation so far. Okay, let's move on and talk about another trust. I should say that um, Winter Floods, your firm, is a, is, a, is a broker to JLEN Environmental Assets, and you're also a broker involved in the next fundraising exercise. We say this for reasons of full disclosure, as normal, uh, and that is uh, Lion Trust ESG Trust. This is an interesting announcement about a potential IPO. So what can you tell us about that, Simon? Well, this week, Lion Trust ESG Trust made an intention to float announcement. And basically, they told the market that they are looking to raise £150 million through their IPO. And that will be invested globally in what they describe as sustainable companies. Uh, effectively, they're looking to build a concentrated portfolio. This is all listed companies of between about 25 and 30. Uh, and this will be based on the highest sustainability scores and will include mid and small cap names. Now, this investment trust will be run by Peter Michaelis, Simon Clements and Chris Foster, who are an established team at Lion Trust, Lion Trust Investment Partners. And people may know them through their uh, Sustainable Future open-ended funds. The idea behind the investment trust will be differentiated from those open-ended funds by um, the greater concentration and the ability to invest in mid and small cap ideas. This idea that you take advantage of the investment trust structure to provide access to less liquid names. Um, but it's certainly uh, an interesting development, another IPO in the investment companies sector. One of the interesting aspects actually about this is that they're quite thematic driven and the themes themselves are linked to United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. Although they did note or they have noted that in fact there are four of the 17 development goals that are essentially uninvestable at the moment. But what they're actually looking to do is that they've said the investment manager may donate up to 10% of the management fees to fund research uh, to identify and develop financial instruments to cover those currently uninvestable sustainable development goals. And these include things such as no poverty, zero hunger, life below water and life on land. So they're very much aligned to that. And um, the fact they've got ESG in the title uh, tells you everything about what they're trying to achieve. Yes, well, this one is of, of great personal interest to me. Those of you who are members of the Moneymaker Circle would be able to find a... I did an interview with uh, Peter Michaelis, who's one of the lead managers on the uh, in the Lion Trust sustainability team. We had a nice uh, 45-minute conversation about uh, what they do. And, uh, and one of the things I like about them is the fact that they've been doing this for a long time. It's not like this is their sort of suddenly jumping on the ESG bandwagon. Peter and his colleagues were previously at Alliance Trust and before that another fund manager. And they've been doing this kind of sustainable ESG-friendly investing style for something like 20 years. So it'll be very interesting to see how it goes. Uh, can you perhaps tell us the timetable and where you think this might actually, will it be in the in the global smaller companies sector? Will it be in the global, where will it be found on the investment trust space or has that not been decided yet? Well, in, in terms of the timing, uh, the prospectus, which is the all important document that you need when you bring a new company to the marketplace, that's due to be published in late May. And the, uh, the IPO is expected to close in late June. So that's the kind of broad timetable that we're looking at at the moment. In terms of which subsector it gets categorised in, clearly the fine, the great, the august minds of the AIC Stats Committee, I'm sure we'll be thinking about this one long and hard into the evening. 
joking aside, I suspect my personal view is that we'll probably sit in the, the global sector. We've already seen Keystone positive change, for instance, the Bailey Gifford vehicle that moved from Invesco to Bailey Gifford and adopted a global mandate. And that's where that one sits now. And one suspects that this is where the Lion Trust Fund will go as well. Obviously, there's a lot of interest in sustainable or uh, ESG friendly investment these days. It's very much a popular place to be. But the investment trust sector does not, apart from the small environmental sector, it doesn't really address this in a uh, particular segment. But presumably, the more trust we have, which are of this uh, nature, then maybe we might see them cluster together at some point in, in the future. No, I think that's right. I mean, it, it's very obvious to me, just judging by the calls, the inquiries that we've had into the research desk over the probably the last two or three years now, to be honest, that people are looking for investment trusts or investment vehicles of this nature. And, and you're right, in the investment company sector, there isn't really that many that, that fit the bill. Clearly, things like renewable energy infrastructure, they certainly do. Uh, and we have other funds such as Impacts, uh, Impacts Environmental Markets that we've talked about before, that again has a very long-standing uh, track record uh, in this space. But um, that aside, and there are probably one or two others, you're absolutely right, there aren't that many. You know, there is an argument, do you kind of separate these type of vehicles out into their own subsector, or do you actually make them stand up against the wider competition? Because I think there is an argument here that they should, and increasingly do, stand up in their own right, that uh, you don't have to take a a kind of returns haircut to go down this route, should you be so minded. But, you know, that's a, a debate for another day, maybe. Indeed it is, uh, though I think it's worth saying in terms of the Lion Trust open-ended funds in this area, uh, they do tend to have a kind of growth bias. And so that's actually been one of the factors that have helped them to perform well. And as you say, is that, are they outperforming many other ordinary uh, non-ESG funds because they uh, a growth style or because they're actually there's something superior merit in it. That's, I think, the big argument needs to be settled over time. But very interesting, very good to see this new uh, addition, or hopefully we'll, we'll be able to pull off its IPO and uh, and join the investment trust sector. Uh, let's move on and in this whole kind of context. We could talk about US Solar Fund. This is the fourth trust we're going to talk about today on the fundraising uh, perspective. What have they been up to? I think we knew they were looking for to raise some more money, I think. But uh, what, what's what's happened there? No, that's right. So again, we're back in the uh, renewable energy infrastructure subsector. Uh, US Solar Fund, they were targeting a fundraise of 105 million uh, US dollars, uh, and they were actually oversubscribed. So they announced this week that they'd raised 132 uh, million US dollars. And that's, again, quite an important milestone for this company. So just to remind people, it came to the, the marketplace back in April 2019, so just over two years ago, and raised uh, $200 million at that stage, so a decent IPO. Um, but this is the first time it's come back to the market to raise a, a meaningful amount of money. So uh, what are they going to do with the proceeds? Well, they're going to uh, refinance uh, an existing portfolio, a Heelstone portfolio, uh, and they're going to acquire a further 25% stake in Mount Signal 2 uh, and also reduce down their uh, credit facility, which is quite a well-trodden path uh, in terms of these fundraisings. So no, a positive development for them. I suspect they'd be delighted that they were oversubscribed. And again, you say they've been going only for a relatively short time, but uh, uh, how has the share price performed over that period? I mean, and what is the yield? So what have you been actually been gained as an investor in this trust? Yeah, so yield is obviously an important part of the story. I mean, the share price hasn't really pushed on hugely. It would have been launched at a dollar. Uh, I've got it on my screen, just one dollar and two cents. Uh, so you've made a modest return on that. And in yield terms, 
my understanding is they're still building out their dividend record. So again, they have paid a dividend, but I don't think they're up to full speed uh, in terms of their dividend payment, though clearly that will be an important part of the total return. And of course, the uh, the pound has strengthened as well a little bit over that period as well. So uh, if you were a sterling investor, slightly different story. Okay, let's move on then from fundraising and we'll talk about some results. Let's start off with Aberdeen Latin American Income, ALAI, obviously as an Aberdeen fund or will soon become an ABRDN fund, possibly or possibly not, as we discussed last week. What (laughs) What are their results been like? Well, they announced interim results for the six-month period to the end of February. And in that time, uh, they outperformed their composite benchmark. So their NAV total return was up 7.2%, and that compared with 5.8% for that benchmark. That outperformance was really a result of uh, positive stock selection. Uh, And it's worth noting, actually, that this is a hybrid portfolio. So the benchmark is 60% equities, 40% bonds. Overall, their portfolio is probably a little bit more than that in terms of equities, probably about 65% equities and the rest in bonds. But it was that equity portfolio that did particularly well, up 12% versus 11% for uh, its respective index. And in terms of the the bond portfolio, that ended up in positive uh, territory. So it's an interesting vehicle, this one. Um, So as the name would suggest, it's it's Latin American and income, uh, but it is relatively small. So I think the market cap at the moment is just north of £30 million, so £32 million. So a very small investment trust in the greater scheme of things. And actually, in recognition of that, uh, the people at Aberdeen Standard Investments capped the management fee on this one, have agreed to cap it, thereby so the ongoing charge does not exceed 2%. So this is one of the problems that you have sometimes with smaller investment companies, is that the scale of investment fees and the general cost that uh, investment companies incur mean that they become uh, uneconomic. And this was a way of alleviating that But uh, Latin America is a very interesting part of the world. I think as we've discussed before, uh, this one is 45% exposed to Brazil, 25% Mexico, uh, and then lesser amounts in Colombia, Chile and Uruguay. Uh, Moving on to the other side of the world, or nearly the other side of the world, let's talk about Schroeder Oriental Income, SOI. They've also had some interim results out. That's right. They had interim results out again for the six months to the end of February. And in that time, well, they had a decent set of results, actually. NAV total return up nearly 21%, and that compared with uh, nearly a 17% rise for their benchmark, the MSCI All Country Pacific X Japan, uh, where it's a comparator index, to be fair. In share price terms, not quite as strong, but still nearly up 20%, and that just reflects the discount widened out a little bit. But uh, yeah, an interesting update. Um, They've moved the portfolio around quite a bit in the period. They took profit from some of the uh, strong performers from last year and they've reinvested in financials. Uh, And they've also bought back a few shares in the period as well, an average discount of just short of 6%. But obviously income is a key part of the story here. uh, And they paid out interim dividends totaling 3.8p. And that's in line with their previous uh, financial year in that six-month period. But it's worth noting that this one was managed from its launch, actually, by Matthew Dobbs, who, again, as we've discussed before, retired at the end of last year, and Richard Senate has uh, taken over. Okay, so we'll move on, and then we'll talk about, um, let's talk about a couple in the alternative space. Let's start with Bluefield Solar Income Fund, obviously one of the solar funds. We've talked about US solar. Bluefield is a slightly different animal. BSIF, what have they had to say? So they announced their NAV at the end of March, uh, and this was actually down from the end of 2020. 
So the NAV at the end of last year was 117.12p, and at the end of March that had fallen to 113.14p. So what's gone on here? Well, it reflects a couple of things. Essentially, power price forecasts, which are quite an important part of the renewable energy infrastructure story. Um, some of these vehicles have greater exposure to power prices than others, but it can really move the NAV around. Um, those forecasts have decreased, effectively on the long-term basis, and so the NAV has taken a 2.1p hit from that. Uh, and the other key development has been the increase in the UK corporation tax rate, which we found out about, obviously, at the last budget. And that's had an impact of 3.1p on the NAV, uh, although there have been some other factors that have offset it. So that's really what's moved the NAV there. In terms of the income side of the story, which again is very, very important, it's a better story. So 100% of the revenues are contracted till the, the end of June this year. And actually, if you look out to the end of June next year, that number comes down to 88%. So they've declared uh, an interim dividend. And so far this year, uh, that takes the total to 4p. And the guidance on their full year dividend has been reconfirmed at 8p. Uh, that represents an increase from 7.9p. And they've said that 8p dividend is expected to be covered by earnings. Okay, so an AP dividend, so that's a, a yield of around, uh, what, 6% or something like that at current price. What has the uh, what has the share price done since this uh, investment trust came to market? And, uh, I mean, there has been a little bit of capital gain, I think. Yeah, that's right. So the share price at the moment is probably about 124p, somewhere in that region. As you say, the yield, very important part of the story, is about 6 6.5% at the moment. It's trading on a, on a premium to its NAV. But the solar funds have been um, a little bit wobbly of late. Um, Bluefield probably less so than, than uh, Foresight Solar as a result of media stories about where some of the solar panels are coming from, namely uh, China. So there's been some stories run in the media about that, and that's caused some share price volatility. OK, let's move on and talk about uh, Apex Global Alpha, APAX. Uh, not surprisingly, is the ticker, Apex Global Alpha. Uh, and they've uh, had some quarterly results. That's right. So it was an update for the three months to the end of March and a pretty strong update, actually. The NAV total return in that period uh, was up 10.4%. Currency On a constant currency basis, it was up 6.8%. But um, effectively, so this is a private equity fund, but the portfolio can be broken down into what they call private equity, so kind of direct private equity, and then they have what they call derived investments, uh, so that might include more private equity debt, and the, the balance is about 70% to 30%. But in that three-month period, they benefited from two full exits. They also had a partial exit and a public listing as well. So lots of uh, investment activity. And actually, if you just put the IPO to one side, the average uplift on exits was about 50 51% to the carrying value. So they're seeing quite good uh, uplifts as and when they are disposing of these companies. They've made some new investments, uh, it was ever thus, and they're focusing, as, as indeed are many of these uh, private equity plays now, on what they describe as digital enablement and digital acceleration. So digital probably being the key word there. But at the end of March, they are 93% invested, so they're sitting on some cash, which uh, will meet their outstanding commitments over the years to come. I don't normally think of the private equity trust as being... Uh particularly uh, well known for their yields and so on. But uh, this one does offer a decent yield, does it not? You mentioned that. What about the discount, though? Private equity trusts have been uh, on quite wide discounts, many of them, but they have been coming in recently, I think. A lot of people have been looking at them with some interest. What's, uh, what's the story in terms of their market uh, performance and rating? 
Yeah, no, you're right. It's probably on one of the narrower discounts that we've seen. So it has briefly touched a, a premium rating actually in the, in the past six months or so. But I've got it on about a 10% discount at the moment. You're right about the yield. I mean, what they're trying to do is they're targeting uh, net NAV total returns of between about 12 and 15%, uh, which is obviously, if they can achieve that over a long period of time, is, is a pretty impressive uh, return target. But within that, they're looking to pay a 5% dividend. And actually, on a historic basis, they are yielding uh, 5%. So that does differentiate them from some of the other private equity names. Okay, so let's move on. And last week, we didn't talk about any property trust. This week, we could maybe catch up on one or two of them because it has been a relatively quiet week on the results front. And property sector been very much in, in investors' uh, sort of focus, I think, at the moment. I mean, there have been some a lot of talk about uh, the fact that they seem to be on the way back. Even some of the generalist investment trusts have been garnering support from some quarters of the market in any event. But let's start with uh, Alternative Income REIT, A-I-R-E. What have they had to say? Well, they uh, announced uh, an update for the first three months of this year. Um, and uh, NAV moving in the right direction. It was up half a percent in that period. And also the net initial yield of their portfolio was up as well from about 55 to 5.9%. The, the updates on the rents are always eagerly awaited because obviously that has a direct correlation to invariably the dividend that these funds pay out. And actually, um, so far, they've collected just, just under 88% uh, on the quarter. Uh, and in addition to that, they reckon about 10% or so is contractually due for the remainder of the quarter. So a relatively positive story in terms of the rent. They estimate that since the start of the pandemic, they've collected 97% of the rent due uh, with deferment agreed on the balance. But uh, in terms of the dividend and where they are, they've declared a dividend of 1.25p in respect of their first quarter of this year. And that's up from uh, a penny per share in the previous quarter. So again, this is something that we're seeing for a number of these property plays. They're increasing their dividends back up. And actually that 1.25p was covered by their EPRA earnings per share as well. Uh, and they had dividend cover of about 125%. Yeah, so this one is an interesting one, isn't it? I mean, it appears to offer quite a, an above average uh, yield, and yet it's trading pretty close to par. Why do you think it's uh, not been, if you like, more popular? Why is the yield not lower than this is? Yeah, no, it's a good question. I mean, I've got it on about a 13% discount or so. I mean, I think one of the key things to note with alternative income REIT is the fact that it's actually one of the smaller uh, property companies in the UK commercial Subsector, I've got it on a market cap of about £59 million pounds or so at the moment. Uh, and when you look at funds such as UK Commercial Property, which is uh, larger than a billion, or even BMO Commercial Property, 630-odd million market cap, then this one is, is, is far smaller. And I think if there has been a trend with some of these commercial property funds, it's been towards some of the larger names. So I suspect that acts as a bit of a headwind. But you're right. I mean, in terms of the, the historic yield, you know, I've got it above 6% or so at the moment. Okay, let's move on and talk about another REIT, a custodian REIT, C-R-E-I. What can we say about them in and indeed in comparison with uh, the one we just talked about? Yeah, so again, they had uh, they provided an update, an NAV update for that first three months of this year. Uh, and again, their NAV per share was actually up 1.2% this time and their NAV total return. for the, In fact, the financial year to the end of March uh, was in positive territory, uh, just short of 1%. But certainly, as at the end of March, they seem to be in relatively good shape. The portfolio was valued at just short of 552 million. Their loan to value ratio 
which is an important metric for the, a lot of these property companies because invariably they, they are geared. Uh, but that stood at 25%. And in terms of the rent collection for the quarter, the number there was 90% uh, adjusted for contractual rent uh, deferrals. Um, so again, um, that's probably part of the course at, at the moment. The dividend per share that was declared in respect of the quarter came in at 1.25p, and that was in line with the previous quarter. So unlike alternative income REIT, they didn't increase it in this particular quarter. Okay, and at the end, we might look at just how some of these uh, compare on a, on a yield basis. Let's move on and talk about Standard Life Investments Property Income, SLI. Another one in the uh, Aberdeen Standard Stable, which probably won't be changing its name, I'm rather thinking. But let's see, what does the, what do they have to say? Yeah, amusingly, actually, the manager here, Jason Bagley, a very experienced manager, he muttered something in the results about uh, ASI, and that's how he's always going to refer to it. So I don't think he's necessarily embracing the rebranding uh, opportunity. But in terms of the results, Standard Life Investments property income performed well in, in the first quarter of this year. Its NAV per share was up. Uh, 4% and in NAV total return terms, it was up 4.9%. Uh, so it's uh, really bouncing back. There's quite a lot of portfolio activity here in terms of uh, sales. They made three sales. There was some other activity as well. And again, their loan to value ratio came in about 21%. In terms of their rent collection, that stood at 87% in the first quarter. And, and so far for the second quarter of 2021, that's coming in about 86%. So there is a bad debt provision there, uh, and that was at 3.3 million. But the news on the dividend front is that the dividend that was declared in respect of the first quarter of this year represented a 25% increase on the previous quarterly rate. So yet again, another example of these property companies uh, deciding or managing to increase their dividends back up to nearer the levels they were pre-COVID. Okay, well, let's move on and talk about UK commercial property REIT, UKCM. How can we compare what they've been doing, what they've been saying with uh, what we just heard? Yeah, so again, uh, a quarterly update to the end of March. In that time, their NAV per share was up 1.5% in NAV total return terms. They're up 2%. And obviously, just to be clear, that takes into account the dividends that they've paid in that time. So UK commercial property REIT, it's a large investment company, as discussed, so their portfolio was valued at just short of 1.2 billion, uh, although that was down slightly from the end of last year, reflecting uh, various sales. But probably one of the kind of eye-catching elements of this one is that they increased their occupancy. Uh, that moved from 94% to 96% as a result of strong letting activity. So despite everything that we may have seen across the wider UK economy this year, or certainly in the first three months of this year, they managed to actually increase that occupancy, which is, uh, I think, relatively impressive. In terms of net gearing, they've always been one of the more modestly geared property companies. That stood at just 5.6%. And in terms of their rent collection, and this is data for the second quarter of this year, that stands at 86% so far, and that reflects a few agreed rent deferrals. But again, when you break it down, they've given quite an interesting breakdown on this. Industrial and office, north of 90%, retail 77%, and other, which you always got to ask questions about other, but I think it's it's more leisure activities. That's down at 53%. So you can see which areas of the property market are really struggling at the moment. But again, the quarterly dividend for UK commercial property has been increased, and it's actually been increased by 40% to 0.644p per share. Um, and that represents 70% of the pre-COVID rate. Okay, so on my reckoning, that's, that's four trusts we've talked about, and uh, they've all had modest increases in NAV, between half a percent and four percent in the best case. 
Um, but their NAV per share, all of them are still below 100p. So it's still an evidence that there's been quite a lot of pain in this sector. And let's just compare that next with then with uh, uh, Tritax Big Box REIT, BBOX, uh, which is a specialist trust, of course, and done very well. What's been their story? Yeah, so they provided a, a trading update. And it's worth noting, actually, they don't do quarterly revaluation. So it's a slightly different uh, statement. But basically, in the trading update, they made clear that of their rents received for their financial year 2020, they've received 99.8% in and actually full collections expected by this summer. And then equally, in terms of Q1 and Q2 this year, those numbers stand at 98% and 95% respectively. And again, they expect that number to kind of rise to 99%. So very, very strong uh, on the rent collection side. They're also managing to make some progress in terms of rent reviews as well. So in this particular period, the first three or four months of this year, they've actually had two historical reviews settled in their favour. And that's added um, over £3 million to their annual contracted rent. So I think you can see that these big logistic warehouses are definitely prospering in the environment in which we now find ourselves. Before we leave the property sector, let's just do a quick recap on where we are in terms of discounts across the sector. I mean, as ever, it's a very wide range, as we keep on saying, but has it, been, it has been narrowing somewhat, I would think. But um, just taking the ones we've talked about today, how do they compare in terms of, of ratings? Who's valued and who isn't valued by the market? Yeah, no, sure. So to, to start with Tritax Big Box, I mean, that's on a premium rating at the moment. I've got on about a 9% premium rating, and that obviously reflects the fact that um, there's a lot of demand for that kind of commercial specialist logistic type play, but then also their yield at 3.4% on a historic basis will be lower than a number of the wider UK commercial property plays. Standard Life, I have on about a 12% discount, and actually that has narrowed in to your, your point. UK commercial property on an 8% discount, and again, that's always been one of the, the tighter rated property funds, uh, and again, that will have been re-rated. Uh, we also talked about alternative income REIT. That's on a 13% discount. Uh, and custodian REIT, I've got that on a premium at the moment, about 9% premium or so, uh, which probably stands out a little bit. Okay, so we're going to move on uh, finally to the last part of our results uh, roundup this week. It's about time we're going to talk about the music royalties sector now. It used to be one trust only. Hypnosis, now it's rounded up to two with Roundhill Music Royalty Fund as well, recently arrived on the market. Uh, and they both had something to say this week. So this is what we like to see, a bit of competition in the uh, good, bad or unknown music category. So tell us what you know about these two, Simon, this week. What have they had to say? Well, thank goodness they've made some announcements because it's been getting a bit dull without talking about them for a number of weeks now. But Hypnosis Songs Fund uh, announced an acquisition. They acquired the catalogue of a gentleman called Andrew Wattman, who's also known as Andrew Watt. Uh, and he's actually a producer. He won in 2021. So this year he won the Grammy Award winning uh, producer of the year. And they've acquired copyrights on for publishing a writer's share of income of 105 songs, of which 81% are top 10 hits. And actually, it's quite interesting. We've talked about the disclosure around these music royalty funds in the past. And as part of this announcement, they made it clear that the catalogue generated revenue of uh, 3 or $4.4 million of revenue in 2019. And 41% of that revenue was generated outside the United States. But he's uh, apparently he's co-written five of the top 100 most streamed songs of all time, including Havana and Senorita. And he's worked with artists such as Justin Bieber, Miley Cyrus and Ozzy Osbourne. 
Right, okay. Afraid the name doesn't mean that much to me, but uh, it's interesting nonetheless. And let's move on to see what uh, Roundhill Music Royalty have had to say. RHM is their ticker. Yes, and I think this is, uh, again, it's another acquisition. And I think this is uh, quite a substantial acquisition. When this company came to the market last year, they made it clear they had a pipeline of acquisitions lined up. And this is the kind of final piece of the, the jigsaw. So they acquired a share, 29% share in RH Carling Holdings. And this catalogue is vast, basically. It comprises over 100,000 songs. And that includes songs by artists such as Johnny Cash, Aretha Franklin and Elvis Presley. Uh, and so now as a result of this, they've acquired their, their full pipeline uh, and all the capital raised back in their IPOs is, is, is fully uh, invested. It's worth noting that this, this took probably a little bit longer than I suspect they expected, but it, the deal has now been done. And the consideration reflects the valuation of this catalogue as at the 30th of June last year. Um, they've taken out a little bit of a, um, a credit facility in, in order to kind of make this happen. And also they've said that as a result of this deal, they're now well placed or they anticipate paying uh, their annualised uh, dividend, which the guidance on that is equivalent to 4.5%. So this deal kind of gets them up and running. OK, so there we are. We've got these two trusts now in this sector. And uh, just give us a quick update on how they're... Uh how they're performing and uh, what the uh, prospective yield on these two trusts is at the moment. Yeah, so they're both trading well, really. They're both trading on premium ratings. So I've got Hypnosis on about a 3% or so premium. Roundhill, probably between about 4 and 5%. In terms of the yield on a historic basis, Hypnosis is coming in about 4.3. Obviously, Roundhill uh, to date hasn't paid a dividend. As I said, it's still relatively early days. But if it does manage to achieve that, 4.5%, then even with its um, share price slightly above a dollar, uh, that's going to be a four plus yield as well. So it will be quite comparable with Hypnosis Songs Fund. So just rounding off then the whole uh, podcast this week, it's a shorter one than normal, um, but we could just quickly talk about perhaps where we are in the market cycle and what you expect to see. What are you looking to see happen over the next two or three months uh, in the investment trust sector? Are there a lot of more investment trust launches in the pipeline? For example, I mean, if the markets stay as buoyant as they have been, would we expect to see more more launches coming through? Well, I think what we can say is that there, there are a lot in the pipeline already, and we've discussed a, a number of them uh, over well this week and in uh, recent weeks. What we tend to see in a normal year, if there's ever such a thing, is that there is a, is a bit of a rush into the summer lull. So this month, May and June, July, you might expect to see a number try to get away. August is invariably a quieter time and then the process starts again uh, in September and then obviously runs through to Christmas. But clearly these things are very market dependent as well. So if we did see um, a big market upset or, or just in general market volatility, then it be, does become more difficult to, to raise money and launch new funds. As we have discussed before, the difficulties in, in launching new investment trust companies. But uh, at the moment, the markets seem relatively benign, clearly uh, not adverse to a little bit of volatility, particularly on the back of comments by uh, US Secretary of the Treasury and so on and so forth. But overall, I think most people would be relatively comfortable with the way that this year is shaping up. I mean, the other big story, I guess, we've had in, we had this style rotation from growth to value, which kind of petered out a little bit in the last few weeks and then um, come back again. It's been sort of volatile itself. And then we got this trend towards, uh, you know, more investors favouring the UK market. So do you actually think we might see some more UK-specific trusts 
come to the market if we do get this pipeline coming through are you are you aware of the kind of uh, any any trend in that quarter uh, no that's an interesting question i mean the uk as you absolutely correctly observe has had a better year so far and i think a number of people uh, were predicting that and expecting that given that frankly that the uk market has felt undervalued for a number of years now and probably for for good reason whether that leads to uh, new investment trust companies being launched focused on the UK uh, remains to be seen. Obviously, we saw shred of British opportunities towards the end of last year that really kind of played into this theme. So you certainly couldn't rule it out. But I always think it's worth looking at the discounts on existing funds in the UK space and where they're trading at at the moment. And obviously, there is a range, but invariably, it's not too difficult to find funds on a discount. And so for that reason, one suspects it will be quite difficult to launch new products in that subsector. Indeed, I think that was the answer I was expecting you to give. I think it could be difficult. But uh, let's hope that we do see some more activity soon. Give us more to talk about in any event. I should say that uh, if you are a subscriber to the Moneymakers Circle, there is another interview this week, a very interesting uh, conversation with Peter Hewitt, who manages the uh, a fund of investment trusts. So we had a lot to talk about, about coming at it from the same angle, what's uh, what's happening in the investment trust sector and uh, where he's been putting his money and uh, what he thinks might happen next. But that's all for this particular podcast this week. So, Simon, thank you very much for your time. Cricket season is uh, is upon us. Lots to look forward to. And I'll look forward to speaking to you next week. This has been a Moneymakers Investment Trust podcast. These podcasts are independently produced and edited and are available on all leading podcast channels. You can sign up on the Moneymakers website, www.money-makers.co, to be notified every time a new podcast is available. Thank you for listening. And if you want more news, analysis, interviews, and other investment trust content, don't forget to take a look at our premium service, The Moneymakers Circle, available now at the website.